Hello and welcome to private practice. Hold on, sorry, I just realised I'm saying that as if you haven't said anything. That's absolutely right. Have I said anything? Well, because I just, I, 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 one thing I didn't say was that I wanted to, I wanted to start rather than the usual. But then obviously, the usual thing is what you understandably did. Um, can I start? Well, we have started, but okay. No, I'm going to restart this again. Why? Because in my mind, it's going to be hilarious when I... Not hilarious, not even... Just mildly, just just a fun thing. Just a little fun thing. You don't thing. need to restart it. You, you, that's great material, but... And silence. Hello and welcome to Private Practice Podcast. I'm James Hall and I've invaded the London Private Practice Podcast studio. He has. He is here in London, all the way from Casablanca or wherever, and it's great to see you, James. I'm sure it is. I can't imagine how it wouldn't be great to see me. You're correct. Yep, Okay. and welcome to the listener. It's great to have you with us. I think I'll probably get tired of that joke one day, but I haven't got over it yet. What, the listener? Well, because, no, 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 you say to me it's great to see you, and obviously the polite thing is, and it's great to see you too, but it's just that because... You're almost saying, now, James, say mm-hmm. the expected thing. Uh-huh. I mean, you're, probably, you're not expecting it because you know me, but you know, like, when I arrived today and I launched into talking about something, you jokingly said, yes, I am looking great, aren't I? I did. Which we both know what the expected thing is. Yes. But it's just that, but firstly, when I arrived, I, didn't, it, I, I, I just launched straight into all sorts of things, which is no different to any other time, so that, that wouldn't have taken you by surprise. And you probably rehearsed to say, and I do look great, don't I? Yes, that, you probably had that little, you probably had a little inner smile earlier this morning that that was what you were going to say when I arrived and started launching into talking about whatever. Maybe. But now, when we're recording, obviously, when someone says, it's great to be with you, the polite thing is you just repeat back, you mirror the gesture. Yeah. But of course, that means that it's just a prompt for me to do exactly what I'm... To, to go against what I'm expected to do, which is always tempting. It's why, as far as I'm concerned, things like um, censorship and so on don't work, because as soon as something is censored, it means people like me, just having never had any interest in what is censored, suddenly want to read it, say it, or whatever is newly outlawed. Right, censor- censorship is an in- enticement for you to do something. As well as being a number of other things, like PR for the thing that was previously ignored. Yeah, yeah, I think that happened recently with that uh, comic book Mouse, didn't it? I've never heard of the comic book Mouse. Right. Graphic novel. Sorry. <coughs> Apologies Ooh. to the listener if I cough throughout yes. this. I am potentially a super spreader. I think he is. Uh, well, I had, a, I had my booster last week, which um, by the time this goes out, uh, they'll probably have... The, 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 the world will have moved on from... Covid and from everything. Yeah, yeah, probably. But 
Um, I've had I had my booster shot last week. Well done. And then immediately afterwards, I became ill, but with <sighs> none of the symptoms of COVID. But then COVID is just different for everyone, and it depends on all kinds of complicated things that I couldn't possibly understand. And this is not an episode about COVID. What is it an episode about? I mean, you tell me. No, you tell me, because the, sub- the, the person at the centre of today's episode is someone who I had a vague awareness of, but you told me that he was, of all the people, and we're including Carl Jung, Irving Yalom, Carl Rogers, Sigmund Freud, Melanie Klein, yep. um, Daniel Kahneman... All of these people. Why haven't you said Michaeli Chitson? Michaeli, of course. Yeah, I'm, so all all the ones that all we the people that we come to. You said once, and obviously I've remembered this. Yes. But like it was, it was, it was the kind of thing that I remember because when you said it, I thought, I am surprised by this information. I did not expect it. It does not compute with how I saw the. The, the bigger picture therefore I will have to question it and potentially adjust yep. my um, interpretation of what's going on here you said that your ultimate hero and the the number one influence to, to, to that had really made a difference in how you view your job and your relationships with people and so on was Oliver Sacks and so I thought well excellent here is someone that I will um read and find out find out more about and so on with the expectation that he would be another kind of Mickley Chitson Mickley or Carl Rogers type of person who was sort of like half philosopher half psychology scientific psychology practitioner and the reality was I was I was surprised when you said it and then I was surprised the more I found out about him so why on earth does this strangely niche man have some kind of influence on you above and beyond all others? So Oliver Sacks, um, who died not too long ago, um, at, you know, around about 90, I think he was. He was in his late 80s, I'm sure. And um, he has had a huge influence on me because of his manner and the style with which he speaks to people and his curiosity about the world and his understanding of others as well as his own personal experiences I have been able to relate to for myself and and understand, well, you know, believe that I understand some of what he was going through at different times in his life. He, he also has this... Um, obvious development of personality throughout his lifetime and obviously development of behaviours and he has his sort of you know as he got older he's quite public about it he had quite a a dark underside and a a difficulty with processing who he was and where he was from and matching that with his kind of professional life and his um, uh, medical work and his, his his therapy work and he has a beautiful way of telling this story or telling his story. And he has, also has a beautiful way of helping other people tell their stories. He also has a strong... He had a strong influence on me in his attitude towards those who are uh, underrepresented 
in the medical world or underrepresented as patient groups and trying his very best to describe, explain and understand incredibly complex neurological conditions and psychological and physical states. And in doing so, he he became a wonderful storyteller. And there's also something which is not, it's not really very... Um, there's also something very sweet about him. He's very, he seems like a very nice man, a very personable man, but he's also got a very cheeky side. Um, and just everything that I've read that he has written, I've enjoyed. Every time I've seen him on a podcast, I've been seen him on a podcast, seen him on television or in an interview or a podcast or radio or whatever. He's always really interesting. He always has something interesting to say. And I don't think he ever stopped being that person up until the day he died. Um, and I think he had a huge influence on how patients are seen and how people speak to patients um, globally and in, in, in a number of fields, not just in his sort of niche area. That makes sense that the basically the, the difference between you and me in terms of finding uh, inspiration from someone, I'm going to condense it down to what I think it is and you can tell me if you agree I look at someone like especially a good example would be Daniel Kahneman who has done some research done it well come up with some conclusions articulated them well and I look at this and I think oh excellent this person has done the work they have uh, provided some useful information Uh, they have conveyed that useful information to me in a way that is not tedious for me to take in and therefore I can update my uh, my picture of my life and the world and so on and with this new understanding let's say for example I now understand better how to make a decision how other people make a decision and why for example someone else might make a decision that seems, from my point of view, to be the wrong decision. Now that I understand that, when that situation presents itself to me, when, for example, someone I live with or a colleague or whatever makes seemingly what I think to be a stupid decision, instead of going, instead of my world falling into chaos and me thinking, but why would anyone do that? Why can't this person see that they've made the wrong decision? Instead of that, I have some useful, a little a useful little tidbit of knowledge from a scientist who says to me, this is why people make these decisions. Here is the process. Um, we came to this conclusion by doing all these um, very watertight studies. Nothing is absolutely certain, but it's the best available information. And it's useful for you to make sense of the world and what's happening in front of you now. And your life is going to be better because instead of being thrown into chaos and thinking, I just don't understand why people X, you can think, oh, this person has just done something that I think is silly, but I can completely understand why they do it. Therefore, my world isn't thrown into chaos. So I can just consider it an interesting thing. And whilst I'm not going to make that decision myself, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to punish them for doing it. Mm -hmm. And then your life is just so much better. And therefore, it's very easy to take Daniel Kahneman and and simply put him in the box of a good influence in my life, uh-huh. a useful person who has contributed to my knowledge of the world. Well done. You've done it well. Tick. That's me. 
you, meanwhile, mm-hmm. way more touchy feely, is kind of like, mm, I got a good feeling from Oliver Sacks. I could really relate to him when I think about his life story. It's just so interesting. Part of me wishes I was there. Part of me thinks it's a bit like me. Part of me can really empathize about how he didn't like the thing that happened. And I know I would have felt the same way as him if I'd been there. That makes him such a rich and complex person. Oh, yeah, and then rich he's and complex, good. Yeah, yes, and, yes. and he's been in all these situations, doing all these things, mm-hmm. and some of them are related to my um, occupation and therefore it's relevant. Some of them are just uh, things that I may never have thought about, but they're just interesting, and that just makes it really fascinating to find out more about him, and therefore I'm just going to dive into his autobiography and h- hear the story from his words and when I say story I mean like tell me about your background and and how did you get there and what did you feel on the way and what did it smell like when you first stepped outside of the airport when you landed on Californian soil blah 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 and I couldn't care less what um What's his name? what Daniel Kahneman smelt when he first left Israel. I couldn't even tell you if he first left Israel. I don't know if he was born there or what. To be honest, it's just, you know... I don't actively not care. Like, by all means, if I was in the pub with Daniel Kahneman, I'd have a conversation about what it was like growing up wherever he grew up. But I don't need to know where he grew up and what he what his, what his it smelt like the first time he got stepped off an aeroplane in order to find his body of work useful and in a small way life-changing for for me in a beneficial direction whereas for you if Oliver Sacks had just been a rigorous scientist who'd never written an autobiography and didn't have pictures of himself on Muscle Beach in the 70s (laughs) and stories of how he hated himself and didn't know how to have a relationship and blah 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 you'd have just thought here's another boring Scientist that I can't relate to, so you're going to have to pay me to read this information. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> Whoa! So I feel like um, just listen. I feel like we may have dived into minute forty-five of the podcast there with James's seven-minute rant, which had lots of interesting points in, some of which I may have missed. What I what I think that we're missing on this podcast is um, our small talk. Oh, yeah, we forgot that. I mean, listener, as you can see, we are today going to be discussing some of the ideas of Oliver Sacks and a little bit about him as a person. Um, and James and I are going to be thinking about, you know, the influence of famous scientists and psychologists and focusing <laughs> on Oliver Sacks and some of his writing. Um, but, of course, before we really get into that... Um, if we can backtrack after that, James, um, small talk. I mean, this is an important, integral part of Private Practice Podcast. Also an important and integral part of Private Practice Podcast is that if you're recording onto an SD drive, the SD drive needs to be in the recorder, unless there's another one in there and you don't need that one. I mean... What happens, James, when you try and record something without an SD card in the recorder? It records onto its hard drive, but if you've already got a hard drive that's full, then after, let's say, um, 15.4 minutes, it just stops because no more spacey space. Well, luckily, I put another SD card into this Zoom recorder, and we have 20 hours, 
45 minutes and one second. Oh, good. We can do a 20-hour podcast. I can't wait. I won't keep my small talk brief then. Don't keep your small talk brief. Do you want to do the singing? Because I might start coughing if I do the small talk jingle. I'm going to do a sort of a... Feeling feeling something today, but I'll, I don't know what I'm feeling. Uh, so I'm going to go with a sort of a softer ear. Small talk, small talk. Let's hear what's your small talk. do do you see that the instrumental bit afterwards i don't really care for that i could just do with small talk small talk private practice small talk the end that'll okay. be fine for me okay good good it's good to see you after a year and a half or something <laughs> two years it's great to be great glad you're here i haven't actually been here in the private practice studio for two years jesus in fact this is a new private practice studio you've never actually seen correct but now this is what the fourth or fifth one that you've been in and it's pretty much identical to the first one three it's the fourth okay yeah fourth but identical to the first no it's a mirror image of the first yeah the the stairs would be behind me if we were in the first that's right and i'm looking at them in front of me yeah i know anyway yeah small talk great so that's a part of small talk uh how have you been? What's going on for you? Anything interesting to tell? Yes, I'm glad you asked that question. I had to get a new GP recently. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and what did that involve, James? <laughs> what did that involve? So basically, when Just I... one second, listener, because James was about to jump into this story when he walked through the door earlier, and after 17 minutes of non-stop conversation... Well, no, non-stop monologue at me, he suddenly came to something that could potentially have been interesting. So I told him to stop and hold off and tell, tell the listeners and the small talk, you know, to, to tell us about this exciting thing, which started off with, I recently joined GB, new GP. Anyway, carry on, James. Well, one of the applications of self-service technology that I've realised I'm not in favour of is a self-service blood pressure machine. So I arrived at the GP surgery with, and for our international listeners, um, when you see a doctor in the UK, you're registered with a general practitioner at a particular location. Mm -hmm. And I decided to register with a new one for a reason. Great reason, good reason, carry on, as you were. um, So when I turned up, I'd done the paperwork, I went up to the desk and I said, I filled in everything I need to fill in. The only thing left is to measure my blood pressure, height and weight with the machine in reception, like it says on here. And she said, "Okay, yeah, there you go. And I went to use the machine and... Um, you had to put your left arm in and I just had the booster the previous day and my left arm was aching and I didn't want something compressing around something that was already hurting. So I said, is it possible to do it with my right arm in the same machine or will it be too awkward? And she said, oh, you can use the other machine that's um, next to it. It doesn't matter which arm you use with that. I thought, brilliant, that's much easier. This machine looks simpler. Uh, Then... Oh, she, then she'd given me a token that I didn't need, so I went back and gave her the token. The, 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 basically, sh- her expectation was that I would go up to the desk. She just need, she, I didn't even really need to go up to the desk. This was kind of a formality. She pointed me at the obvious machines right there. So I think her expectation was that I would go and use them, 
like everyone else, not have any problem. No problem. Come, I mean, come back it and sounds have Sounds so fucking simple. Yeah. But obviously, with my phobia of anything to do with my blood and circulation, uh, as soon as I, I was very much not happy at the idea of a self-service blood mm-hmm. pressure monitor. So I put my arm in, and <coughs> pressed go, and the thing contracts around and it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. Uh-huh. And I can feel it. I wish you'd had filmed this on your phone. And so then I proceeded to have a panic attack. And Brilliant. That is exactly what you needed at that point. And previously, up until this point, I'd been the only one in reception. But by now, there's a whole load of people. So I just pressed, hit the emergency stop button... In a, in a nanosecond, I caught a glimpse of a number that was on the screen and I just wrote that. Unfortunately, they gave you brackets of this is low, this is normal, this is high. Yeah, it's normal range sort of. Yeah, 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 yeah. and the number I'd seen was within the normal range, oh, so I just God. wrote that down. Um, and the other thing <coughs> was that I really <coughs> needed to be registered with the GP for a reason. As so just many a, reasons. And so it wasn't going to... I could. I'm sh- I've had m- multiple times I've had my blood pressure taken in recent years, so I wasn't too concerned about the accuracy of this reading because unless something had changed dramatically in the last year or something, but even so anyway, I thought let's not make a problem here. Yep. Um, that's really uh, there's no more to go with well, the, that's story. the story. That's, that's the story, yeah. And you you brushed over the panic attack by just saying I had a panic attack. There's no details there that you want to share. Um, it was the same reaction that I always have. I started hyperventilating, kind of going dizzy. I knew that if I didn't do anything, I would probably black out. So I hit the emergency stop button, and then I was okay after that. There's an emergency stop button. Yeah. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> what? Well, because it's a it's a machine that contracts. So your, whole, your whole arm is in the machine, is it? Yeah. Is it almost like like you know? You know, like a vet when he has to like reach inside a cow. It's exactly that, is it? Yeah. So, did you have some kind of cow ass sock on your hand, or is it just? They did have those actually. Yeah, but yeah. I didn't need to use that. You could. You decided against the cow ass sock. Well, she said the woman at the reception said, "No, that's not necessary." I don't know why they were there and why. Like, why have them and then have a receptionist say, no, you don't need them, but well, uh, for whatever. For our international listeners, it is, it's a kind of a, um, an urban myth in that all GP receptionists are, like, the worst human beings on the planet. They're controlling, they're nosy, they lack the ability to <laughs> uh, maintain your privacy, they'd happily shout across the room... James Hall for his gonorrhea results. You know, um, they're, they're, they're really bad. And they obviously love uh, undermining any kind of sort of medical authority doctors and nurses have. But, um, yeah, so that's probably why she decided that infection control principles don't apply in that GP surgery. And you look like you've had your hand up loads of cow's asses without gloves before. <laughs> your turn. Do you have any small talk? Oh, God, I've got so much. Where do I begin? So... And thanks for asking, James. I mean, what time did you get here? I don't know now because you made me move the clock. <laughs> he's only been here three hours, and that's the, f- the first time he's asked me anything about myself. He hasn't asked me a single. You haven't, have you? Asked me a single. No, I brought you fully up to speed with everything that's in my life. But since the last time I spoke to you, yeah. I'm satisfied that you are not going to face any um, difficult ambiguity. Mm-hmm. 
therefore it's time for you to... Spill those beans? Spill the beans. Oh, I will. Well, actually, James, lots has been going on, but I don't want to take up too much of the podcast's time with my small talk. Um, I mean, I just think it's really interesting that you're still almost fainting and having panic attacks um, uh, with the whole blood and pumping thing. Well, surely the only way that I would not do that is to somehow face up to the phobia. And you, are you, is that? Let me, let me just get this straight. Are you saying why have I not faced up to the phobia, knowing that the way to deal with the phobia is to face up to it? Well, in essence, yes. I'm asking about whether you feel you're ready to face up to that phobia. And every time I go to say blood or pumping, I'm worried that he'll pass out. So you're not going to pass out. No, it's kind of like I'm expecting it from you. And it's, has there got it to be some physical? Silly. Has there got to be some physical something? to happen, like the cuff or the doctor saying, look, here's a picture of your... Usually I have to see or feel something. Usually words don't have an effect, but but it would be wrong to say that words cannot have an effect. Mm. But it would be more likely to happen if I was taken by surprise by someone saying something that was very vivid that I didn't expect, Mm -hmm. and I would be disorientated by it. Whereas you saying it... With a kind of he 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 yeah a, a, a sarcastic twinkle in your eye doesn't yes. really. I don't happen. want you to faint or collapse. <laughs> Although it would make a great moment for the podcast. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I've had a panic attack while recording and just got through with it. So maybe I didn't notice because I was just ploughing on with my notes. Exactly. That's probably, how. It probably used didn't to be. even ask why I'd gone red and was struggling to breathe. <laughs> Actually, breathing. No, so, so one thing I do want to say, and I'd like to come back to it at some point, and luckily I've got it here next to me. Um, I was given a book at Christmas, which um, I think for some people definitely would be life changing. I think you probably said somewhere on the front, life changing. Oh, here we go. Literally, the first, sorry, Sunday Times bestseller, Breathe. Or is that Breath? Is that Breathe or Breath? That's breath. Breath. Sunday Times bestseller, Breath by James Nestor. At the bottom, Wim Hof, the, the ice man. You know the ice man, Wim yeah. Hof? He says, I highly recommend this book. And I agree with him. I highly recommend this book. Where's the life-changing book. bit? The Sunday Times bestseller, okay. top of the page. Life-changing. Okay, good. Read it, and I guarantee you will want to change the way you breathe, said the Evening Standard. Full of dazzling revelations, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. Now, it's interesting because another book that I got for myself... Oh, no, no, this was my birthday present from my friend. It was by Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, which is the four-pillar plan. Now, I think... There are there eight pillars to his four-pillar plan? No, there's only four pillars. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, pillar... Part A of pillar <coughs> one. Now, the four-pillar plan and... And breath. Breath by James Nestor. I think this will be one of our forthcoming, up, uh, upcoming episodes, but these two books I cannot recommend highly enough. If you want to... Just add a little something to your life. Um, and in terms of answer to your question, I've lost my flow of thought now. Yes, I do think you should face the music and get yourself into some kind of therapy or conversation to work out why you are a sissy who faints at the thought of blood. You put it so perfectly in our phobia episode to do with spiders. You, I think I had to ask you three times. Mm-hmm. And I think the first time I wasn't paying attention, the second time I didn't understand, the third time it was crystal clear and it was like a, a, a cloud passing and the, suddenly the, the sky is blue. 
and you said something about like when a spider runs up the wall it represents something that you've repressed and when it comes out it's intolerable so you have to kill it something like that well yeah it's it, the, the the one of the theories around phobias is that the the exposure to the thing that's causing the reaction is bringing something closer to the surface like a repressed memory or a hidden idea or something from your unconscious mind and the idea of it is so abhorrent or so frightening to you that you have a physical reaction just to avoid this secondary thing that it's not the actual trigger like the the you know the spider or the blood it's that thing that's rising to the surface and it may well not be caused by the exact thing you think it's being triggered by it could be something about the environment so it's something that sort of shook me for a moment when you started saying it was that when you went to put your hand up the cows uh, into the blood pressure machine there was nobody there but by the time the cuff was starting to tighten the room was like more filled with people and it's those it's those kind of sort of secondary things that might actually be more problematic like you know the authority of a doctor the um the the possible outcome of going to a medical appointment the reminder or the smell of a hospital the you know th- those kind of things which might be more associated but actually it's much easier to think that it's about the spider or the blood or you know i think i was thinking normally when i have blood pressure taken by a doctor i explain that i might go dizzy and so on so the doctor understands the doctor knows what they're doing good doctor yeah they do the thing if <clears throat> if I do have a panic attack, the the doctor's not going to be surprised. The doctor might stop and do it again, but that's never actually happened. I've actually, I've usually felt like this is unpleasant, but the person who's doing it knows what they're doing. It'll soon be over. I've had it before. I don't really need to worry, and I can let this just happen, knowing that a knowledgeable person, familiar with the context of me. From what I've from from having just briefed them, is is actively controlling a situation and will stop it if if they consider it necessary. Con- contrast that with a machine whereby someone has programmed a one size fits all action because this is not sophisticated artificial intelligence. This is a plug it in, switch it on, switch it off machine. It's barely more sophisticated than a vacuum cleaner, probably less. So, so, That's a good point. A, so basically point. the machine doesn't know that I'm having a panic attack. The machine uh, doesn't know anything about the context the, the same way that a doctor would. Therefore, I don't trust that the, the, the outcome is going to be appropriate to the situation because how could this stupid very primitive machine no therefore i have to be in control i have to have my finger on the emergency stop button because the machine can't be relied upon and there's no one else around here Mm -hmm. so um there was an element of feeling like this is a suboptimal situation that not only that where i can't let myself be in the hands of someone capable i have to actually be the capable person in the situation and you did. You were. You are. Well, not really. I had to press the emergency stop button because I had a panic attack. I mean, ideally, I would have. I don't. I don't. I th- I, like it's not horrifically painful. I didn't have to endure some kind of excruciating pain. It's just tight. Yeah. 
and everything that happens when it gets tight is something I've been through before and don't like, but it's, I know that it's temporary. So what were your thoughts saying at the time? That the machine is going to go longer than a normal doctor would, that the machine is... Maybe when the doctor does it, they kind of truncate it slightly to give me a shorter time with the thing on my arm than most people. They probably don't, but no, they definitely no, don't, no. Absolutely not. Um, but at least if things did get out of hand, I wouldn't have to, pr- to make that decision and press the emergency stop. The doctor would recognise that I'm having a panic attack and stop. And because that's in the hands of the doctor, I don't actually need to think, is it time to for an emergency stop or not? And therefore I'm not, I'm less anxious and therefore I don't actually have the panic attack and the doctor can just finish it, whereas I have to manage the machine. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, it's definitely something to come back to. Great small talk, great small talk today. Did we even... I don't feel... like If, 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 if someone said to me, so how has Dan been since the last recording? I don't think I have any information. No, I know. But that's all the time we've got for small talk today. <laughs> so... So I think we need to move on, and you can have learnt something from that. Actually, yeah, we're beyond the half-hour mark. This is the longest we've taken to get onto the subject. Well, ever, we have I been think. on the subject. You've already okay. done a seven to nine-minute rant <laughs> about. I mean, I feel like you maybe have you got a pen and a paper? Can you make some notes about some of the points? That also, we did talk about the two books that I've recently read, or okay, yeah. I'm in the process of reading. This one, I I did a skim read of Dr. Rangan Chatterjee and really enjoyed it. I looked at some of the lovely, got some lovely pictures in. Let's have a look. Oh, look, here's him doing some running. <laughs> oh, this is of course um, body weight exercises in up a tree. <coughs> this is kind of supporting what I was saying earlier. That yeah. kind of the reason you like it is because. Oh, yeah. you look at that book and you can kind of see someone who you would be friends with someone who you would like to be yourself someone who does things that you do I reached out to him, I've already sent him an email and asked if we could go training in the park together so yeah and would he like to try your apples and he'll try his apples and yeah. you can compare well, and, you know, do you, does he have any tips of optimising the mycelial network in his yeah, 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 kitchen yeah. garden but if that book had no pictures and that his picture wasn't on the front, it was just an abstract graphic sort of Bauhaus style um, graphic design execution of the front cover and there were no pictures inside. Yeah, Dan's showing me a text-based front cover of Lovely. another book. Would, would, would you be so excited about Dr. Rangan or not? I mean, I'm not excited about Colin A. Espy, so I'm okay. guessing not. So you're very easily manipulated by touchy-feely, human, emotional stories and pictures. I have... Do I feel manipulated by people if they have a picture in their book of them? Is that what you're saying? I think you do, but I don't know if manipulated is the right word because it sounds like... Ever since we had our episode on conspiracy theories a year ago, um, I've... I've I've come to the kind of conclusion that I usually come to, which is sort of like taking everything in measure, which is, for example, so for example, with this, to say that this author is manipulating you by having a nice picture of himself mm-hmm. on the front and littering the thing with the kind of 
lifestyle photography and it's probably written in a he, like, he probably doesn't just write it in a dry scientific journal style he probably has little colorful written explanations of uh-huh. you know it was a spring morning i could smell the dew as i was walking through my kitchen garden i took a i, I noticed the sound of the birds singing and i took a deep breath and i felt yeah, something like that and that's the kind of thing that does it for you but I'm not going to call that manipulation as if he's some kind of evil figure. Influence, I think, is the word that you're looking for. Influence. Yeah. He's clearly using tactics that attract your attention, which is what is in his interest. Yes. And I don't think that's some kind of dark art. I'm not uncovering a conspiracy. I'm not lifting the veil... To, to to show you that he's actually not a normal human being. He's actually a, secretly a covert uh-huh. agent manipulating of you. Of the Illuminati. Uh, yeah. Okay. And the same goes with conspiracy theories, because when you think about the reasons why people do things in order to achieve goals and things, of course, when you get people together in an organisation and the organisation has goals people are going to do things that they wouldn't have otherwise done and many people are going to work towards the same conclusion. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy... to, uh, uh, To me, the manipulation in that situation is often the person who feels like the, the person who has the conspiracy theory, the person who's like, hello, welcome to my podcast, listen up, you're going to learn about a conspiracy theory, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to lift the veil on something that, that's going to change your life, I'm going to give you the information that will make you stop trusting that home delivery service of organic fruit and vegetables because they're actually evil, satanic paedophilic whore worshippers or whatever. Uh, the person who does that is, the, is, in my view, just as, if not more, manipulative. Because when, when you get an organisation of people, as, of course there are going to be patterns of behaviour that, that correspond to a trend that no individual would necessarily endorse or choose to follow without the cooperation of the other people in an organization for example so let's say there's a company that is producing something that kind of changes the way you dan live your life and it's ambiguous as to whether that's a good or a bad change so it's alcohol yeah so it's perceived as a manipulation and then the more you change the more successful the business is and so they're incentivized to keep you doing that i don't see that as a conspiracy i see that as obviously that's how they're going to run the business and it's kind of partially your responsibility to know that people operate in normal predictable ways well influence this is about influence yeah exactly so i think that there's a a huge amount of conspiracy is actually influence and not conspiracy yes i agree with you completely i mean and i'm surprised that you didn't because you were so close i really thought that you were going to use the nazi party there as a you know as a as a really good example of when you know it's not a conspiracy they weren't really lying about what they were doing although they didn't publicize everything that they did they said what their aims were, they got people on board, they influenced them, and they did terrible things. But it wasn't really a conspiracy, was it? It was just a group of very right-wing, very 
psychopathic people or very violent, aggressive people doing something terrible to the planet. I don't know that it is a conspiracy, was it? It was an organisation. But if you're suggesting that Dr Rangan Chatterjee is influencing me in the same way, simply because he has nice pictures in his book and writes the book in a conversational narrative style and that I can't see that he is trying to influence me with his four-pillar plan <laughs> to better health, then I think you may be underestimating my intelligence. Let me just briefly... We've gone totally off topic, but I'm enjoying this. Let me just mm-hmm. briefly put it differently. Let's pretend that he was some kind of, like... I know you, and I think that what I'm about... The, the caricature I'm, I'm conjuring right now mm-hmm. is likely mm-hmm. to be kind of irritating just because none of your friends are like Well, I'm going to carry on vaping whilst you say Carry on. So imagine if he seemed like some kind of fickle, fashionable, social media trend following, young, Uh a face that looks like you want to slap it kind of thing. Um, And all the way through his pictures are kind of like oh, here's me living my fabulous life, it's better than yours, as yep. opposed to, oh, I, the things I enjoy in life are when I grow a really good apple or I find it satisfying when I'm doing my exercise in nature. Mm-hmm. Let's pretend that he didn't care about any of that. Let's pretend that he found it satisfying to be in a crowded, sweaty, packed gym. And as far as he's concerned, he's the best looking and he's better than all those other people who mm-hmm. could... And he wants them in the picture to to make him look superior to them. And you're never going to look like that. That would irritate you and you would put the book down. And you. But let's pretend that the book has exactly the same nutritional information in it. Yeah. Just presented uh-huh. from the as if it's coming from a person who you wouldn't like to spend time with in a pub, therefore, or what you don't like, but who you wouldn't like to spend time with in a non panic inducing scenario that's not a pub, right? Um, you'd hate that book, even though the information is identical. This person, you want to, you know, go to the woods and practice stretching with the trees you want to invite him to your allotment so that he can say oh that's interesting Dan oh I didn't know that you'd be a fan of mycelial networks like me or we've got Uh, lots to talk about you just know that you're going to be friends with this person if he turns up at your door that's why you like his book or rather that's why you read it enthusiastically and then as a byproduct it turns out that the information is useful I mean like you you could only argue with that under double blind controlled experiment conditions, which was absolutely impossible in this case. Correct. Give me the exact book, <laughs> but with... What's his name? He, I think his name is Mark Wright, and I think <coughs> he was in Made in Essex, or The Only Way is Essex, or whatever it's called. The Only Way is Essex? Mark Ryland. Mark, Ryland no, not no. Ryland, Mark Wright. Oh, I don't, I don't know. Oh, I hear, oh, I hear, oh, yeah, great. Oh. If it was him... And his four-point pillar plan, you're absolutely right. I'd be like, why did someone buy me this? But I might still read it, and I might still find the information useful. I mean, here's a page on leaky gut. Who doesn't want to read about leaky gut, you know? Um, but, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, but we all have, you know, um, a certain preference to the way that we are influenced and what we associate with and what we are influenced by and how we connect with things. It's not me, James. You, you, surely you're well, the same. Or do you, would you probably, rather? Would you would you be more 
interested in Colin A. Espy's book, Overcoming Insomnia and Sleep Problems, because it has no pictures of him overcoming his own sleep problems. I think when it comes to reading a book like that, I am a little bit more interested in the... in knowing... or I can't know, but like feeling confident that the book is going to... It's not going to be telling a story. It's, I'm like, the reason I would read that book is to, is to improve my sleep. So it's not like I need pages, pages, page after page after page building up Hogwarts in my imagination. I don't need that. So I'm hoping from that book that it's going to be as concise as possible. I don't want to go through page after page after page to essentially learn something that could just be on one page. And I don't... And to be honest... Really, I don't care about the life of the person who wrote it because I don't want to be fooled into reading a not very useful book written by someone who is a real personality and gets me turning the pages because of their writing style, only to find at the end that I can't sleep any better. I'd rather have have generic grey human being giving me the information I need to sleep better and as concise as possible so that I don't waste my time turning pages not learning anything mm-hmm. that's great that's exactly what I want and if as a bonus if the cover is nice graphic design then that fits me as a graphic designer I appreciate looking at it whereas that one I don't like the look of it but um so now Dan's showing me another book which is absolutely fine but quite boring but not offensive I would be fine with that on my shelf but I'm not excited by it but I would rather that than Thomas Erickson who wrote Surrounded by Idiots I'd rather I'm not I've bored myself now all of this is shocking all of this has come about because I accused Dan of being interested in Oliver Sacks because he himself is quite a character and is somehow compatible with Dan's emotions growing up and the way he conveys neuroscience is in a storytelling way where his emphasis is on the person and the touchy-feely side of a human life as opposed to what is the difference between the left and right hemispheres. Absolutely. Um, I think... So, today's episode, (laughs) Oliver Sacks, and what a legend he is. I was first aware of Oliver Sacks relatively young because my brother had the Philip Glass, I think it's Philip Glass, opera of the man who mistook his wife for a hat, which I thought was very funny um, that someone would call an opera that. And then I either I googled it or found a book, I can't remember, and realised that it was a, a real condition. Oliver Sacks wrote about this gentleman who couldn't recognise objects for what they were to the extent that he actually would see his wife but would think that she was a hat or a coat stand or something else and there was something going on in his brain. Now, I haven't... Although you have it there with you, the man who mistook his wife for his hat, I haven't read that. I've read a number of his other books, Hallucinations, Musicophilia, and, most recently, Oliver Sacks' On the Move, A Life which is his autobiography. But I, 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 after hearing about him, probably, oh God, like, how old am I? 25 years ago, in my late teens, um, he, he would often pop up on things that I was already interested in. So there was a lecture in university for my nursing degree where he was mentioned, something to do with... Um, 
his work on Parkinsonian-like um, symptoms for people who are suffering with something called or known as the sleeping sickness. And also then again, when we were looking at um, depictions of mental illness and mental health problems in uh, the media and in film, and the film again was um, Awakenings, and Robin, Robin Williams played Oliver Sacks in that. And so he came up then. Uh, he was on a radio programme, it was probably Radio 4, which was listened to a lot in my house as I was growing up, and he was being interviewed, and I remember he said, which he also repeats in the film and, and his book, that he found one of the most comforting things in the world to be was the periodic table of the elements. And he said that it, it and, and I'm obviously paraphrasing, but that it, it contained all, ele- all elements of life, everything that you needed to know, everything that was quantifiable and everything that was understandable to him. Or, and he found that incredibly reassuring. And I remember that I was in my mid-twenties then when I heard that, and I also found that incredibly reassuring. I don't understand the periodic table of the elements in the same way that he does, but the fact that you could go, look, everything that we know right now is made up of this. Everything out there in space, everything deep, deep, deep in the centre of the Earth, everything in our bodies, everything in the stars, everything in the other planets, this is what we know. This is the list of it. This is how it behaves. This is how it interacts with each other. And after that, I stopped really... Having thought about that for a number of years, like what that might mean, I stopped thinking about and wondering about whether God existed because I didn't think it was necessary after that. Because although I'm sure there's more to discover, from what we can see and feel and hear and know right now, that's pretty much it. That periodic table of the elements... I don't need to understand it all. Like, I wouldn't need to read all of the Bible and all the other religious texts to believe in God. I understood after that 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 is reality as much as I can understand it. And that was an incredibly powerful thing. That, And at that time, I didn't know what his face looked like, James. And I'd only heard him <laughs> once or twice on the radio. <laughs> And I'd seen him portrayed by Robin Williams, who I actually find really irritating. Yeah, I don't think I'd even seen his face at that same that time, so... Good, I think I was completely wrong. Yeah, you're correct in um, flashing fingers at me. But his, his manner is that similar to a mental health nurse at their best, which is someone who tries to listen and tries to understand, who questions what he's being told, who sees the individual as an individual, who can separate the illness from the person and all of those characteristics the more you learn about him and the more you see him on television you can see him embody what it is to be a mental health nurse however he was an exceptionally high practitioner of the sciences up to a point did he kind of carl rogers his way through consultations even if he didn't necessarily knowingly do so do you think oh absolutely i think he he may well be the embodiment of carl rogers um help me out here james why have i gone blank on on becoming a person no 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 no, not on becoming a person how (laughs) i want to say unrequited love unconditional unconditional positive regard yeah he he showed that with everyone and also he showed it to people who who were actually probably quite uncomfortable and difficult to be around so um having recently watched the the sort of documentary version of his um, a Life on the Move book. Um, they showed loads of footage of him around people with the sleeping sickness. And, 
it is uncomfortable to be around people who are so tormented and so um, limited in what they can do because it reminds us of our own fragility and mortality. And he he would, you know, happily, like, touch people who looked like they had something incredibly physically wrong with them. He would sit with them, he would stroke their hand, he would talk to them even though he was getting no replies. He would ask them questions as if they could reply, even when they weren't able to speak. He would spend hours of his time walking with patients or, you know, pushing them in the wheelchair or telling them stories of listening when they could speak and writing those up into kind of case studies and um, observational pieces about individuals, um, which is highly useful for other clinicians, but also shows a massive level of compassion and interest towards the individual, which science doesn't necessarily or medicine doesn't necessarily show i mean i could grab a textbook off the shelf <laughs> it's the kind of thing i don't like fucking looking at because it's got all these sort of gory pictures of you know like um warts and deformities and whatever the fuck grows on people's bodies that is not nice to look at but it doesn't talk about the person who's suffering with that it talks about the the symptoms of that and Oliver Sacks was very much about the person even though he had he you know had a incredible talent for describing the experience and the symptoms of the neurological condition or the psychological disorder I'm thinking now from hearing you say that that it would be much more beneficial to learn about for example, the differences between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere in the context of a person who might have a problem when the the connection between the two is severed or when one isn't functioning um, in, in the normal way, rather than just a scientific description in as concise but well-articulated way as possible. So in other words, I'm going against what I said earlier. I'm taking back what I said earlier. But I still don't... I, I want to know that it's not just fleshed out with human stories of Cynthia lived in the Bronx and she played piano and three times a week she went to the same cafe and everything. I don't want that just because the author doesn't have the confidence that the subject material is interesting enough. Therefore, in order to kind of like cynically, in order to keep these suckers reading this boring science, let's make it seem like it's more interesting by clutching at straws and hoping that they think Cynthia in the Bronx is actually um, an interesting character. I want, in other words, to know that Cynthia going to the cafe demonstrates that, for example, the way she feels when she's in the cafe changes her, uh, let's say relaxes her into being able to talk in a certain way that doesn't happen in the consultancy room. And therefore, when the doctor takes her to the cafe, uh, she's more likely to give some useful information. So I'm still keeping it scientific, but with the human interest that you like. I don't want human interest that's just bolted on and kind of irrelevant to the science. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I, I hold that thought. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something. Um, 
when you're talking about this, you've got to think about who is the target audience and, and, and what is the message that's being put across. So if you want to know everything there is to know about the left and right hemisphere, you probably want a medical textbook focused on neurology and as up-to-date as is humanly possible. So in essence, probably a textbook won't tell you much more than the basics that a narrative-driven case study story done by the kind of authors that I like who maybe also have a personality that I might connect with. You want probably the most up-to-date research papers. You want someone who has just done 40 experiments over 10 years about the left-right brain connection, about which um, neurotransmitters are present when certain events take place. You want that. But the average person on the street, firstly... If they picked up, picked up even, even the most easy read, one of these scientific research papers, these double-blind, peer-reviewed, 3,000 words published in a journal about the left-right brain connection, wouldn't be able to understand most of the language in that. Oh, yeah, but let alone... Wait for me. Okay. Let, let alone have any interest in what it really meant. So if you combine those 40 studies from that, that one set of scientists with these other... 40 studies about the kind of... So there's the scientific picture, but there's also the clinical picture. And the clinical picture is where you're looking at people with the illness. If you take those 40 studies from the clinicians, who are, you know, might be nurses, occupational therapists, or uh, physiotherapists, or um, doctors who are dealing with the patients, and the 40 from the scientists, and you push them together, you get what we know about the left-right brain connection. And then you get someone lovely like... who talks about the individual and he 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 pops in bits about what we know about that history clinically and scientifically and medically and he brings it together by showing a person who's who's suffering with that so if you think that you or anyone else could take the 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 scientific papers and put them together with the clinical papers and easily make sense of what that means in the real world, you're sadly mistaken. No, you're right. But what I, I want someone, who, at minimum, who will take the scientific papers and the clinical research studies and will condense them into the bare minimum that I need to know and the rest I just trust and will not go on and on and on with too many words because they're a little bit too autistic and feel like they can't possibly leave anything out. I want that. But what makes that even better is if they have some kind of story about Sylvia who lives in the Bronx and goes to this cafe. Only if that's relevant, though. What I don't want is for them to do their job properly and then think oh, this is still a bit boring, I'd better include all the details of what I had for breakfast this morning to make it seem like I'm a human being writing this book and not a robot. Yep. Yep. I, I mean, I can't, I can't agree with you enough. Now, I know that over the last couple of years that we've been doing this podcast, both you and I, and I had a head start of about 20 years because I ended up going into nursing, uh, mental health nursing, because I thought I could cure myself. I eventually did it as a career and realised that no one can really cure themselves and you always need a little bit of help with curing something, especially if it is incurable. Um, But I have read the clinical research side of things, incredibly dry, really difficult to digest, often written in such a way that it seems 
purposefully trying to alienate anyone other than those with the highest intellectual and cognitive capacity to maintain an understanding of the words that they're using to talk about something probably so simple that could be explained in such easy read language. It's like the culture within scientific research is to fucking alienate the rest of the planet. And I hear what you're saying. And <coughs> I, think there's a, I think there is a ladder of competence in this kind of writing so you could say that at the top of the ladder are these scientific researchers but i think they're actually at the fucking bottom of the ladder oh i do too but if you can't communicate in a way that someone will understand what you know then you're not a communicator and it's not your job so don't do it yeah absolutely 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 but they still do have to publish the findings and the way that the um the genre or whatever you would call it the the standard, the, what would you call it, like the process for scientific writing, because it's double-blind peer-reviewed by the kind of lofty academic twats that have been doing it for the previous 20 years, and they were basing it on the stuff that was done the previous 20 years. Because it's reviewed by two of your peers, and usually those people will be way more experienced researchers who can decide whether the language and the tone and everything is basically... They're looking that it's unbiased. And so therefore that often creates this incredibly boring, almost unreadable, other than the research results page. You know? As it should be, because we don't want scientists to think, how can we make a blockbuster? How can we manipulate the information so that it's page-turny? Exactly, we don't. <laughs> but then we're looking at science writers like Oliver Sacks or clinical writers like this guy Colin A. Espy. I've got no idea who he is. And people who are writing about things that are loosely based on... Science like this Thomas Erickson and surrounded by idiots. Um, and then you have people like Oliver Sacks and Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. This guy, both of them exceptional in taking the science and turning it into something that is enjoyable to read and digestible. And with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's The Four Pillar Plan, there's also some lovely photos in it, which I think you have issue with. Um, also this guy, the James Nestorbutt, the breath guy, he... He definitely doesn't completely understand the science as maybe the doctor does or Oliver Sacks does, but he takes it, understands enough of it that he's able to tell the story and give you the most important kind of headlines from the research that's been done around breathing. Okay. What can you tell me about Oliver Sacks? Oliver Sacks is a neurologist or a neuroscientist at one point. And he's looking at and interested in all the different ways a brain can go wrong and produce a set of symptoms that cause discomfort or a really random experience to the individual suffering them. And he is looking for what about the individual might influence that or what about the, the development of that or what about the individual or their life might be interesting because of the way they then change how they behave and change how they interact with other people. So he very much was um, focused on observing and recording individual experience of people who are suffering neurological conditions. And the left and the right brain is obviously a very important area in that because it's, I guess, traditionally known as the logic and creative sides, you know, one's... I cannot remember which one's which. The left side's the logical Logic. side and the yeah. right side's the creative side. And it's about how those two sides interact or what happens when chemical messengers from one side to the other side have um, the pathways disrupted. How does then someone's experience change? And obviously we mentioned it very briefly earlier. 
but you know hallucinations changes in perceptions changes in behavior changes in um emotional understanding changes in language changes in dreams changes in that kind of stuff he was fascinated by that and so left brain right brain is probably like the most I think, for example, you could, you could take someone who has problems rec- uh, re- recognising objects and if you show it to them on their right-hand side and you say to them, what's this? They say, it's a mug. And I say it's a mug. Like, the, the, they don't just say, it's a mug. They kind of say, it's a mug, duh. Like, why would you even ask me such a stupid question? And then you ask exactly the same person to identify exactly the same object by showing it to them on their... Whatever. If I just said right, then their left hand side, and they suddenly are challenged by this uh, surprisingly disorientating and difficult question. Um, it's kind of a cylindrical thing with a protrusion, and the protrusion appears to just be on one side of it. And I wonder if I can fit my hand through the hole. Maybe not. It's a little bit too small for that. Um, Is it too heavy to pick up? No, it's not. I can pick it up. I wonder what I might do with this. In other words, it's, it's difficult to be aware of what you're not aware of. So you said when you show it to the person on the, on the side of their face, that means the information is received on one side of their brain that's functioning competently. They can't necessarily see that as being obvious because it's come into the side that's functioning competently and they can't... It's difficult to imagine. I I think, I don't know this from I've never had the experience so I don't know but I would imagine if you can only understand what a mug is when it's on your right hand side and you can't understand what it is when it's on your left hand side this is also based on the fact that when um, the information is received in your brain uh, if you see things on your right hand side then they're interpreted by the left hand side of your brain and vice versa Oh, is that sorry? I, I, that is not something that I, you know, I, is, is obvious to me, and oh. probably not obvious to the listener. Is that something that you've read that Oliver Sacks has described? You've uh, not just, you, so just plucking this out of the air, and I'm not plucking it out of the air. I'm plucking it from many different sources. So that's something I believe to be true from listening to neuroscientists talk about the interesting. Dan is now covering up one eye. <laughs> I think I think it is possible and I'm not talking about an eye test. I'm not saying I'm not saying cover up one eye and the world is slightly blur- blurry if you have a different prescription. I'm talking about the fact that if you because the, the thing You're is talking about the perceptual pre- perceptual processing is actually affected by which eye the information is is being taken in by. Yes, but now but now I'm going to speculate slightly oh. because in other words there's a reason why when your two hemispheres are connected and able to communicate with each other, which is the case for almost all human beings, but not the case for most of Oliver Sacks' patients, if you cover up one eye and you look at a mug, um, and let's say you in, you receive what that... What the fuck is that? <laughs> let's say you receive that information yep. into your left hemisphere... Yep. Um, 
you like in a cartoon way in a cartoon interpretation of what i've just said the left hemisphere says very sensibly what a sensible mug that is you can pick it up and it's waterproof so the so the coffee won't spill out and then if you put it on the other side of your body and you look at it again covering up the other eye uh your right hemisphere thinks Oh, how tactile. I'd love to pick up that object. I really think it would feel nice. Mm, I'm already smelling the coffee beans. I wonder what altitude they were grown at. I wonder if they have notes of cinnamon and treacle and chocolate. Like it's it's not mm-hmm. it's not so stupidly comically different as an experience for most people looking at it from the because basically if you see it in the left-hand side and your split-second reaction is a little bit more pragmatic than if you see it in the right-hand side. If, you're, if the two hemispheres of your brain are connected and there's no deliberate or accidental disconnect, uh-huh. then the, 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 um, the process of thinking is so fast that you wouldn't notice yourself thinking touchy-feely thoughts when information comes in the right and pragmatic logical thoughts when it comes in the left because they you you so like if you if you immediately think um what a practical waterproof utensil that is how useful to have it in my life and then moments later you think "Mm, i can already smell the toffee in the notes of my tasting notes of my favorite coffee this is happening in such a split second that such a split second this is happening so quickly that you're not aware of that um um, disparity between left and right because they communicate with each other. The point of the interest in the research of people who have a severed connection or who have a, 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 a part, brain injury might be a, a brain injury that yeah. means that the left or the right is not functioning as it used to is that you can put the coffee cup on one side and they recognise it and you put it on the other side and they don't. I mean... That's just... Anyway, so with Oliver Sacks, it's that kind of stuff that just sends my brain into a tailspin. No, that's not right. You know what I mean. It, it kind of excites me and it, it, it triggers a whole bunch of, of, of ideas and, and it makes me wonder what else I don't know about that. And it might point me in the direction of reading a little bit more than... In fact, if anything, can I say this is true? Oliver Sacks will have been one of the three or four people pre-becoming a mental health nurse. So like my early 20s, like 18, 19, 20, 21. In fact, yes, I can say that this is true, definitely. So I must have seen his face in my late teens. I must have heard the periodic table of the elements before I was 18. Because when I went to university and I started experimenting with hallucinogenics... I had an incredible trip where one of the faces I saw popping out of my wall, um, it was, I mean, I can almost see it now. There was, you know, it was, the, it, was the, it was the characters I was interested in at the time, obviously, like, burr. Um, one of them was really scary. One of them was Alistair, like, so it could have been like a Hindu god or something. One of them was Buddha, really reassuring. One of them was Oliver Sacks, really reassuring. And one of them was Alistair Crowley. And there was a couple of others that aren't coming to my mind right now. This green glowing face that was popping out of my wall, almost like a relief mask. And, and it was repeated like all around the room. So that was way before I became 
a mental health nurse, but I had this character, this this guy, and I didn't, had seen his face, but didn't didn't know he was gay. Had no idea he had experimented for years of his life on drugs. Um, so there was loads of things I didn't know about him, but he'd already interested me in that idea about the periodic table of the elements and the universe. Definitely must have heard something around his interest in psychology or neuro. I probably thought he was a psychologist, you know. Um, so he he definitely may have influenced my coming around to the idea to, to get into mental health. So he's definitely had a huge impact on me. But it was years later that I started reading his books. Probably in my 30s, I started reading his books when I was already a qualified mental health nurse. I might have read sections of some as I went through my training, but never a whole book. So in answer to your first question, he, he influenced me because of his work and because of his ideas. But now, if you read anything that he writes, it, it always like triggers a set of, of interesting thoughts. Let me read just a section. This is from his book, Hallucinations. PET and MRI scanning have shown that the musical hallucination like actual musical perception, is associated with the activation of an extensive network involving many areas of the brain. Auditory areas, motor cortex, visual areas, basal ganglia, cerebellum, hippocampi and amygdala. Music calls upon many more areas of the brain than any other activity. One reason why music therapy is useful for such a wide variety of conditions. The musical network can be stimulated directly on occasion as by a focal epilepsy, a fever or a delirium. But what seems to occur in most cases of musical hallucinations is a release of activity in the musical network when normally operative inhibitions or constraints are weakened. So, like... There's definitely stuff in that that I might Google to check I understood what it meant. You know, there's definitely a list of um, parts of the brain that I maybe didn't even realise were so well known what they did. So I might. So everything that I have read that Oliver Sacks has done always excites me to go, oh, there's more to that. But also there was enough information in that that even if you didn't understand most of those words, you could still understand what he was talking about. And that paragraph has excited me. <laughs> And there was no pictures in this book, James. <laughs> no, this is fine. You don't need to keep. You're not. You don't need no to pictures. be on a crusade to persuade right? me. Part of it is, of course, I enjoy setting up some preposterous caricature of you that, that is basically a challenge for you to say. Well, actually, James, I'm not that stupid. Um, which I, I think you've done. I think you, I think you can um, relax and step back from that now. Okay, but I will. One of the things that I think is an overall takeaway from his from Oliver Sacks' entire lifetime's work and I don't know the extent to which this came from Oliver Sacks or if he coincidentally contributed the same insight as any other neurologist or pre or pre scientist previously coming to conclusions before him about the brain but that it's impossible to fully predict or to fully understand how this is to, to do with empathy to understand how someone perceives anything so to say for example um to 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 have to be absolutist in your judgment of a person's reaction to a manifestation in the world so let's say something goes bang and 
some one person jumps and the other person stays completely calm that's just that, that that's evidence that there isn't a human way to react to a bang because both of those two people were human and um there the and people are familiar with things that you can easily recall from experience so let's say you are a sibling you've got an older brother and a younger sister the older brother always jumps when something goes bang the younger sister never flinches you're aware of those differences in the world but with some of the things to do with understanding objects these are quite rare and the people who have them if you even come into contact with a person who can only understand a coffee cup if they see it on the left hand side and not the right hand side they don't necessarily bring it up. They probably want to keep it to themselves because they don't have. They don't want to live their life constantly explaining. That having can... people move their coffee mug around. Yeah, <laughs> um, and 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 more often than not, they're probably used to a reaction of someone thinking, of someone just not getting it and not want, not wanting to understand, thinking it's too weird, and they're not going to invest themselves into trying to empathise. Yeah, yeah, or thinking they're being it's being made up. Yeah, well, probably I didn't even think of that, but that's probably the most likely thing. Not believing it. Yeah, so uh... I think Tourette's is a really good example of this, and I think again Oliver Sacks we can thank for his work on highlighting and kind of bringing to the attention of the public Tourette's. I didn't see it till way later, but I think it was the mid '80s. He started working with a young man <coughs> and did a documentary about this guy whose Tourette's was so extreme. Um, yeah, you you watched the video of his the the documentary, did you? I don't think so. You didn't watch the documentary. Now, did you watch the on the move documentary? I did. I yes. Like, okay, so I'm going to ask you about your thoughts on Oliver Sacks. But there's there's a guy who in that, and they show a little bit of the the filming that he did with him. And you know, this guy is like leaping over kind of railings. He is like running up to people in the street and trying to lick their face. He's like screaming. He's barking like a dog. He's like jumping up and down like he's a rabbit. You know, his tics are really extreme. And in the, you know, early 80s, now, the, the word Tourette's wasn't in, you know, common vocabulary. Whereas nowadays, you know, children who are developing Tourette's and tics, there's a much greater understanding. And it's down to people, not just Oliver Sacks, but it's down to people like Oliver Sacks, showing these people with compassion and trying to explain in simple but thorough language, like, what this is and how it's the brain that's doing it, has enabled people to, to, to be more open about things that they suffer with and also has you know as a kind of a knock-on effect has in, increased um uptake of treatment has probably even supported the development of theories and and research and clinical interventions all around it so just not he hasn't just written things nicely in a lovely little story his influence is much greater than that and that is something i also admire about him and you can't really quantify that so it's a it's sort of a yeah, but I think fortunately you picked up on what I was trying to say because I didn't actually conclude my point. Oh, sorry. Because I, I got so excited and so carried away. Let me try and be way more concise this time. The, the, the thing that I want in other people is the thing that I'm so incredibly guilty of failing at myself, which is being concise. So let's take, for example, Carl Rogers. You could sum up some of the things that you could learn from Carl Rogers as being a case of the individual is not either correct or ill and if they're ill in other words 
psycho, you know, twist your finger around your ear, send, send them into the mental home. You know, as in, someone's got pain, you give them painkillers, they're fixed. Someone is crazy, you give them psychotherapy, they're fixed. They're fit to go back into the world and be normal and identical to everyone else who's normal. Carl Rogers teaches you that that's not the case. Yeah. And in 2022, we're very aware that it's more like there are bell curves of everything with things that we consider normal just being the, mo- the things that are most... Common. Common and yeah, therefore accessible yeah. to us. In other words, by accessible to us, I mean from memory. I can easily remember a person reacting in what I think is a normal way. I have no memory of someone acting differently to that. Therefore, I think that there's a, there's a, a normal way to react to that thing. But if I was given the experience of watching every single person on the planet react to exactly the same thing, and I somehow magically had all of that data easily accessible from memory, then I would know that there was a bell curve. And so what I'm saying with Oliver Sacks is that an overall takeaway is that much like with mental illness to do with um, what would be a good topic, like uh, I'm depressed, no one likes me. That doesn't mean I'm not normal, the other people over there are normal. I need to be fixed with a pill so that I can then go and be allowed back in with the normal people again. Um, Just like with that, when it comes to perception, just because the vast majority of people have more or less the same reaction to a coffee cup, whereas one extremely unusual person doesn't have the normal reaction to a coffee cup doesn't mean that that person is wrong and needs to be fixed but you know i'm not you know i'm not a complete relativist here it's more like a i want a, a richer understanding of empathy in other words i want a better understanding that that person over there doesn't understand what the coffee cup is in the same way that i understand what the coffee cup is but that doesn't mean that the coffee cup is just a social construct it's a coffee cup and it's a fact it's a it's a factually watertight receptacle and i'm not about to say oh well actually that's just because it's not really that it's a, it's just a it's a social construct because the patriarchy decided that coffee cups should be like that and actually it's a symbol of colonial oppression i don't yeah, subscribe to those kinds of views tosh, yeah. but i do think that um and understanding that most people understand the coffee cup in the same way because of a certain process of stimulation and response, but that's not the same for all human beings and there must be some kind of bell curve of reaction to coffee cups in the same way there's a bell curve of pretty much everything. So that was your more concise way of... (laughs) I think that was a tit bit more concise let's say, let's at least I got to the conclusion I didn't yeah, do that for the first time can we get could you summarise it into say two sentences then I'll give you some breathing moments anyone at home you could perhaps just do some deep nasal breathing now whilst James tries to concisely put his point across when it comes to interpreting the world and acting in the world, every interpretation and every action sits within a bell curve or a spectrum, a rainbow, however you want to think of it, of possible 
actions and reactions. Obviously, we know from science and human experience that a small number of actions and reactions to things that happen in the world are common and we think of them as normal. But we know from, for example, reading Oliver Sacks that certain people in the minority do not fit the normal profile. Having an awareness of how people are spread out and knowing that numbers are at play, most people are normal, a few people are not normal, helps you to understand that the world is not absolute according to your own instinct and intuition. You're not just correct because you have an instinct and an intuition. You need the data. But at the same time... Well, uh, wh- I mean, what, 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 why, why, why say more? <laughs> why would you say more? <laughs> I just wanted to inc- incorporate the fact that that doesn't mean that everything is just blandly relative and just randomly sitting on a scale of whatever, whichever way the wind happens to be blowing your feelings today. There are correlations. Mm-hmm. There are numbers that aggregate. You just have a much richer picture when you also study the extremes. The outliers. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, And Oliver Sacks did that. But also, one of the things that he did from that was describe how the brain works in all of those circumstances and how, how and what we what we know about the brain and how we know it. And often what we know about the brain in the normal functioning range is from looking at the outliers and how it has been affected. So one of the things that um, I know that he's looked at over the years is colour perception and perception of time and perception of movement and looking at things like why someone might see the, the walls as moving and someone not, someone who might see things in slow motion quite normally, but also things like hallucinations and how that shows us what our brain is actually doing and what chemicals different parts of our brain take uh, use to, to do those things and also how we can um, observe them under, say, you know, like a, a, a cat scan or, or a pet scan. Or... So, yeah, he's looked at all of those different areas and, and also often that's enabled us to learn more about how we are in... in, in, in in the more normal spectrum of things. Well, James, I mean, it's a question I wanted to ask you. Like, what's your experience and understanding of the late, great Oliver Sacks? Several years ago, I read The Mind's Eye, and I, and I have The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which is, a, uh, like The Mind's Eye, both of them are a collection of... Um, not short stories, what would you call it? Case studies. Case studies. You don't need to have read page one to understand page 400. Thank God. (laughs) Um, So I think think I've only actually read The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a a Hat, which is the first story in The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, Mm -hmm. whereas I've read all of The Mind's Eye. But I remember at the time not really having a broader understanding because I, I read it before we started this podcast and so now I read it keeping in mind all the things that we've talked about on this podcast and therefore it's much more relevant and interesting previously it was a case of like there's one in a million people 
doesn't know that a coffee cup is used for drinking and thinks it's his wife's head. Oh, how whimsically entertaining. But, you know, I've read one of these stories now. Do I really need to read six more? What's the next one going to be? Someone who thought a lychee was a shoe. Is that, <laughs> like, do, I need, do I really need to carry on reading this book? Boring. Next. <laughs> that was kind of my reaction at first. The I man who mistook his lychee for a shoe. And I thought, yes. you kind of like, I'm glad that like, it's just a few pages. You get the novelty of, oh, <laughs> he thought his wife's, his hat was his wife's head or whichever way around it is. Um, ha, 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 ha. Isn't that funny? Um, gosh, I never knew that someone would do that. Now I know a little bit more about the world. Um, next. Mm-hmm. I, I really didn't connect with it, engage with it, see how it was relevant to my life. I thought I'm never going to meet someone. Statistically, I'm never going to meet someone who mistakes his wife's head for the Probably hat. Probably not, yeah. Um, I don't need... To, I can live my whole... I can function in the world without knowing this information. It's just a kind of like... It's just extra stuff. So really, there, there are so many things that I don't know that would be useful to me. It's kind of a waste of time reading this book because it's not all that urgent that I know this information. So I'll just pop that back on the shelf and read something else. Maybe I'll come back to it in 50 years' time when I've run out of interesting books to read. That was kind of my conclusion the first time I read him. Uh-huh. And then watching the documentary, which you say is nowhere near as good as the book that it's based on, mm-hmm. but... I agree, probably. Or rather, I agree that it's not the best documentary I've ever seen, no. although I, li- I, I, I liked it because I wanted to know about his, his life as well as his studies. But now that I have a more uh, focused reason for knowing the things that Oliver Sacks knows in a context of a whole load of things that I didn't previously understand that I've learnt about over the past few years means that I can to me Oliver Sacks is the neuroscientist who understands Carl Rogers rather than the neuroscientist who is boring and doesn't know how to write a book Mm -hmm. and that's why I like him because for example I was talking just now about bell curves whereby most people can understand a coffee cup the outliers can't that according to the um, Carl Rogers philosophy of the world, that doesn't mean that the outlier is wrong and needs to be corrected in order to be allowed into polite society. It just means that when you encounter the outlier, it's, um, it's an update of what you think the world is and how you predict that people will react in it. And for the outlier, it's kind of... Uh, it's a sort of, as you'd call it, a process, probably, for them to decide to what extent do I want to know how everyone else perceives a coffee cup, but to what extent is it is my interpretation of a coffee cup that's so at odds with everyone else in the world a valid interpretation of a coffee cup because I'm just a human and I didn't I was I didn't choose this I was born to interpret the coffee cup in this way um I don't need to be corrected I just it, it helps me in my life to know that other that pretty much everyone else understands the coffee cup differently to me but how nice it can be when a coffee cup seems like a puzzle to solve how boring it must be for that person at the adjacent table who has nothing challenging at all 
just uh, drinks their coffee. Just drinks the coffee and thinks, oh, it's not as good as it was last week. <laughs> Service has gone down in this place. It's so expensive. Yeah. Um, so in answering my question, you, 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 you can now see a value in what Oliver Sacks is doing by highlighting difference and making it interesting and exciting to people rather than it being something that shouldn't be seen or heard or is irrelevant because it's so infrequent well it allows a person who does who see who sees a who interprets a coffee cup in a normal way it allows them to maybe take a moment and look at the coffee cup and try to imagine what it would be like to not understand that object which um just it's just a way of not taking it's just something else that you take a moment to not take it for granted because you need to, like we've said before in life you need to take things for granted you can't you can't stop and be mindful and meditate about every single footstep you make because are you going to arrive to work on time no are you going to pay your bills at the end of the month as a consequence no you need to just put one foot in front of the other trusting that it's something you don't have to think about and the ground will be there beneath your feet and that you learned to walk when you were three and you don't need to carry on learning in your 30s but to live an unexamined life where you never question your sense data and your perceptions firstly leads you to the incorrect assumption that everyone thinks the same way as you and secondly limits the possibility of experience that you can have in the world because you assume too much so in other words I can't possibly enjoy this coffee mug because it's just a coffee mug is not true it's possible that you can look at it. I mean, the way I mean, I suppose the way I was kind of introduced to this was the fact that I did art foundation. So when I was at art school, we were encouraged to look at the coffee cup, and I remember being a, a an indignant teenager at the time, thinking it's just a coffee cup. There is an objective way of knowing what it is, and there is a correct way of drawing it. And those people who don't know how to use their hb pencil to shade it or don't know how to get the perspective right and are simply wrong and haven't corrected themselves uh because the correct way to uh to to represent a coffee cup is fixed um there was a part of me thinking that but then there was also part of me that liked abstraction and cubism so these two parts were totally split and this was a problem whereby i couldn't integrate the two (laughs) so did you not like mcgray no, I loved all that stuff. It's just peep. I loved all that stuff. It's just that I didn't kind of integrate, like, um, how can I feel like that this perspective is correct and also enjoy cubism and abstract art that throws the perspective rule book in the air and lets it land in the river? Senate part on peep? Am I remembering it right? <laughs> um, and you speak French as well, so you'd know if I made any sense at all there um i think well i mean they're different i think it's as in but i mean like it's the difference between that's not a pipe this is not a pipe it is not a pipe oh is it a cat c'est un chien <laughs> c'est un chien c'est un chat 
Anyway, private practice. A shat is a pussy, like a derogatory word for a woman's vagina, just in case you weren't aware of what you just contributed to the podcast there. Oh, so what's a cat? Sha, but you don't pronounce the T. If it's C-H-A-T-T-E, like, for example, um, I watched a film this week, an Italian film called The Hand of God, and there's a young, a teenage boy called Fabio, and he um, goes to visit an older neighbour, she's probably in her 60s, and she seduces him sexually, and he asks, she asks him to brush her hair, and obviously, as predicted, she sort of, like, unclips the hair on her head and lets it fall and says go on don't be shy and he brushes it and then he goes to put the and he's a little bit awkward and but he's a teenager and he goes to put the brush away on the dressing table and she says ah uh, 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 we're not finished yet and she spreads her legs mm. and presents her vaginal hair and, okay, okay, and okay. says go oh, on brush that God. like if you wanted to be a little bit crass in french you would refer to that as her chat her pussy well, we've definitely learned something today. Good. Um, okay, so I'm just gonna um, I'm gonna feed the private practice podcast cat because she's gonna keep making noises unless I do. Um, and this cat cannot be put outside. She goes out when she wants. So I'm gonna give you just a moment whilst I do that because I feel like today's episode maybe was a little bit more about science and psychology writing. Um, I'm satisfied. But is she a cat or is she a pussy? I really didn't come to this with objectives of what I wanted to talk about. It was it was an it was a good example of something where I entirely trusted you. And when we did our mini series on cognitive biases and distortions, I deliberately said to you, "This one's on you." Dan's the expert; he knows about this. I don't. I don't have notes. You'd better get this. Right and not disappoint us all, Daniel P. Brown. I jokingly, uh, I knew that you wouldn't like that pressure. Didn't, I didn't. And so I put the pressure on you anyway because I thought it would be funny because I selfishly thought at your expense I'm going to have a practical joke here. I could have done the same thing this time. I could have said, Dan has read more of Oliver Sacks than me. He was interested in Oliver Sacks long before I was. this is on you, Dan, to make this episode interesting. I hope you know what you want to say about Oliver Sacks because I haven't prepared notes. But I didn't say that. I trusted that your enthusiasm, combined with your knowledge of having read a lot of what he's written, would suffice. And I was happy for the for the episode to go wherever you wanted it to go because I don't think it's necessary for us to give the listener every conclusion every scientific conclusion of Oliver Sacks, everything he's contributed to neuroscience everything about his life his the, the time that he um ha- was kind of romantically attracted to a heterosexual man he knew from I think Muscle Beach in Los Angeles and they used to give each other massages and one time he ejaculated onto this man's back and the man did not receive it well never spoke to him again and I don't think Oliver Sacks had a romantic relationship for something like 20 years after that it was quite a traumatic event for him I think a lot of what he did and a lot this is actually this this is an interesting thing that we could maybe end on is the idea that I often have this conversation with a certain Frenchman in Morocco 
which he like in the context of our conversations it's usually about anger he thinks that um anger is an excellent resource for getting things done in the world Mm -hmm. people are motivated by anger to do good things that they wouldn't have done if they were just sat around meditating like me and i i I don't exactly disagree with that but i think that it's better to take that anger meditate it on it a little bit so that you don't just react in a kind of impulsive impulsive recklessly impulsive way but still use the energy to motivate yourself to do something in the world Mm -hmm. but be a bit more thoughtful about how you do it so you're not just impulsive and i think the same goes with oliver sacks i'm sure he is the person that we know about because uh he was maybe escaping the unattended to romantic part of his life that he he was trying to escape from something that seemed intolerable and he didn't meditate on it he didn't sit on the couch he didn't whatever he didn't face up to his issues about his sexuality and so on until very late in life and so maybe that motivated him to be a more dedicated neuroscientist whereas if he'd just had a healthy loving relationship with someone he might have been massively distracted by feeding the cat and going out to dinner and planning a lovey-dovey holiday yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, th- I think to, to, to be, you know, to go back to how you started that, um, your comments there, we couldn't have in the, you know, hour and a half we've got really have even given you uh, much more than the basic highlights of what we would have read in the book or seen on the film. And I will encourage the listener to get Oliver Sacks on the move, a life, the book first and read it and then perhaps follow that up with getting on Amazon or Apple TV other streaming services are available and getting the film version which I think is just called Oliver Sacks A Life I can't remember now but if you search Oliver Sacks it's the only documentary that comes up it's not like there are lots of them exactly yeah you get a couple of suggestions about some of the characters he's met along the way I think there was a really famous um, young woman with autism who went on to completely change the way she's got a very interesting name and it, it's, it's not coming to me now she went on to change the way that cattle farming is is did you see she i think she's in the film she she's really interesting but that's for another day um yeah so get the book read the book then watch the film if you can be bothered it's okay um as documentaries go and you get to see him which is really nice obviously it's, it's good to see him talking and he is surprisingly odd at times and and very warm and likable um but i i do say read the book because the book's really good read hallucinations because it's incredible read the mind's eye read a bunch of the others also read dr rangan because <laughs> he's a good i egg. think you've mentioned i think we've he's mentioned a- that book enough times today um i would not recommend um oliver sack's Desert Island Discs episode. Oh. It was back in the day when Sue Lawley used to present. It's very old-fashioned British stiff upper lip interview that's incredibly brief. There's no real detail. There's no real interest. Uh, questions are answered in a matter of seconds. The questions themselves are very restrained and I'm being too polite here, like what do you call it, anally retentive. Like she's an old-fashioned BBC presenter who 
who asked stuffy questions. It's very boring. Yeah. It's extremely boring, his yeah. Desert Island. He did have episode. a really good relationship with the Radiolab podcast, actually, and oh. they sort of followed him along the way. And I think he, I think he might have been one of their... Um, like he, they consulted him on a number of the issues throughout the podcast. And I think when he died or as he was getting older, they did two live podcasts with him or recorded him talking live maybe at an event at whatever, Carnegie Hall or, or wherever it is. Um, so they are worth listening to. Um, and he definitely tells the... I mean, some of his stories he tells again and again and again, like the um, uh, periodic table of the elements. I think that's one of his favourites, talking about periodic table of the elements. And I think he managed to get a little sample of all of the elements, I think, and he had them in his house. He got very excited about that. Um, yeah, check him out. He's a really interesting guy. He's missed. Um, so that brings us to the end of our... <coughs> hmm. Episode on Oliver Sacks. It does, and uh, science writing in general, I think. Um, all right, we had some lovely feedback from one of our listeners who told me a really interesting story about how his um, his... <laughs> I might have to check that I can tell the full story and he maybe even let us play the voice note but um, his mum used to go swimming near a nuclear power station in Britain and apparently the nuclear power station the way that it processed the nuclear fission or nuclear fusion or whatever it is they do in the power station created huge amounts of warm water which was clean, it wasn't radiated warm water and this, get, this water gets pushed out into the sea um, around the power plant and so our listener's mum would go down to the sea and swim in this lovely warm water and one day she went she went down to the to the to have a regular swim in the sea and she jumped in and she said the water was freezing so she was furious so she wrote to the nuclear power plant directors and said what's happened the water around the plant is freezing and I can't swim. And she got a letter back saying, well, actually, at the moment, we're doing essential maintenance. So um, I'm sorry, but you'll have to wait. The water will be warm again soon. Or, you know, I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing. But um, the reason why our listener told us this was because he gets very upset in between um, uh, episodes when we leave a long gap. And he asked me whether the hot water is going to be turned on again. So. Oh, okay, all right. So, well, I mean, I'm still of the opinion that I like to kind of cluster episodes together and release them all together so that the listener can kind of know that when episodes start being released, then they'll have a few, like eight or so, one a week. And then when that finishes, they know they're just going to have to wait until the next batch arrive i think that that's a little bit more reassuring than so like for example last in the last year i think we've made 10 episodes if it was kind of like you have an episode like one month you have two episodes then you wait two months and then another one comes along and you wait two months then three come along all at once i'm not sure what benefit that has to the listener and i think there i just i don't think there's anything that we could do that would satisfy everyone. There'll be someone who would much prefer that to what we currently do and probably hates the fact that they have to wait 
sort of like four months and then suddenly they're every week. Yeah. There's probably someone who's very irritated by that. Hopefully. Uh, yeah, and then there's someone who... We love the outliers, though, so that's yeah. fine. And then there's probably someone who is um, perfectly happy with that. And if I were to suddenly just randomly start churning them out whenever we randomly recorded, they would be very irritated at the sudden lack of predictability. Yeah. And also, I think with our podcast, because I do understand that there's a lot of podcasts who regularly, and I will use the word again, churn out content. And I don't think that that's what we're about. James and I both like to read, listen, think, and I like to feel my way through these podcasts. So there's times when I just don't think that it's right to, you know, put something out that isn't interesting to me or I'm not in the mood to do. And yes, I'm sorry, the listeners have to put up with the whims. And James does chase me so that we do try and have some regular content. But I am sorry to the listeners who feel that the water isn't always warm. Regardless of how the listener may feel about the quality of each episode, I definitely come to every episode thinking I want to record now. It's never a case of, oh, we've got to do a recording because an episode is due and we haven't done anything no. we'd better do, we'd better squeeze it in because yep. then yep. I feel like we would end up churning out things that wouldn't be worth listening to yeah I think maybe you know if you looked back and reviewed all of our episodes you might have found that I got somewhat bored between episodes 75 and 130 of Mikkeli Chitsen Mikkeli's entire life's work uh, analysed down to the letter but at the same time I enjoyed the- <laughs> I enjoyed the general content of those podcasts and loved the conversations we had. And so from me in this rainy and sunny day in London town from the Private Practice Podcast Studios, it's a goodbye and thank you to the listener. And the listener cannot assume that I have an identical perception of the same environment because what if I'm an outlier? What if I look at that rain and, I, and I'm puzzled by what it might be? In fact, it's not actually raining, it's sunny, so... Maybe Dan is puzzled by what he sees when he looks out the window and mm-hmm. I'm one of the normal ones who can see that it's not raining. Yep, maybe. I'd better fix him. Uh-huh. I'd better do that now. See you next time. And it's goodbye for me too. Preston from the Ordinary Boys. 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 <laughs>